The Line Out with Lewis Stewart on Rock Sport Radio. Brought to you by Motorpoint Glasgow. Jet off to Rome next year to watch Italy v Scotland. Score two free tickets to the Six Nations at Motorpoint Glasgow. Just two minutes from Junction 3 off the M74. Love music. Live sport. The Line Out with Lewis Stewart on Rock Sport Radio. Good evening, Wednesday evening on Rocksport Radio and that means it's time for me, Lewis Stewart, with this week's edition of the Line Out, your guide to everything that's going on in Scottish rugby. And just at the moment, the only thing that matters in Scottish rugby is the Rugby World Cup. And this programme is coming to you from Japan, where earlier today Scotland got their campaign back on some sort of track with a huge demolition job on Russia, a team that have caused other sides, they caused Japan, Samoa and Ireland a huge amount of trouble before going down to all three of them. This, however, was a completely different game. This was a game where Scotland were able to cut loose and they controlled the match impeccably through both their halfbacks, George Horn and Adam Hastings, and reaped the reward with nine tries. Eight of them could by Adam Hastings, which was equal fourth for the highest score by an individual in a match. But bizarrely, the three higher scores were all by Adam's father, Gavin Hastings. Nothing quite like keeping it in the family, is there? It was a great performance all round by the Scots, with George Horne doing what he does best and scoring three tries in this game to follow the two that he scored against Argentina last summer. Adam Hastings chipped in with another couple, and both of them might have had another try on top of that, but the final pass in each case was ruled to have been forward. But nevertheless, for two halfbacks to score five tries in a game is pretty impressive stuff. The other four tries coming from Tommy Seymour, a fantastic return to scoring for him after a bit of a dry patch over the last eight games, going back to his hat-trick against Fiji last year. And then the forwards took over towards the end with George Turner going over from a mall. John Barkley, a slightly ridiculous try where he seemed to be as confused as anybody where the defence was. And then Stuart McAnally finishing the whole thing off. It was a strong performance from the Scots in every department. The mall worked well. The feared Russian scrum went nowhere. Scotland also pinched another couple of line-outs and caused Russia problems that none of the other teams in the pool have managed to do so far. Don't forget that Russia conceded only between 30 and 35 points per game until this one, and they had also managed to score in both the opening two games. They were 12-10 down to Japan at half-time and leading Samoa at half-time, and they caused Ireland all sorts of problems before going down 35-0. So this was a completely different level of destruction that they experienced at Scotland's hands, and the point being here 
year that this was not the best team that Scotland could put out. This was very much the second string, which may, I suppose, have energised them as well, because a lot of the players there were playing to make a point to the coaches. They will desperately want to be involved in that game against Japan, assuming it goes ahead. And that, of course, is the other bit of breaking news coming out of Japan this evening, that at the moment there is a huge amount of uncertainty as to what exactly is going to be happening with Scotland's game against Japan, which is scheduled to be played in Yokohama on Sunday evening. Now that is somewhere in the region of 12 to 24 hours after what they describe as the biggest typhoon of the year is due to hit exactly that area. Typhoon Hagibis is on its way to Japan. There has been a lot of speculation over the course of the week exactly where it is going to hit but as time gets closer the Japanese Met Office is heartening more and more on the model that sees it whacking into Yokohama, Tokyo, and then scooting north up through the center of Japan before heading off towards Russia. It could be devastating. At the moment, they're talking about winds of 120 miles an hour in the center of the storm, gusting up to 170 miles an hour, though it'll probably have lost a wee bit of energy by the time it arrives on Saturday or Sunday. Its destructive force is still pretty potent and nobody seems to know at the moment exactly what's going to happen. World Rugby, who are organising the tournament and the Japanese tournament organisers, have promised us a statement tomorrow lunchtime Japanese time, which is in the early hours of the morning in the UK, to tell us exactly what's going to happen. But there is a huge amount of speculation that at least one and possibly both the games that are scheduled for Yokohama over the weekend are going to be cancelled. Now what happens if a game is cancelled is that both teams are given a nil-all draw. Now for Scotland that would be an absolute disaster. They need to beat Japan to have a hope of getting through to the quarterfinals. If they can beat Japan and stop Japan from picking up a losing bonus point, in fact a bonus point of any description, then they would go through because they would be level with Japan on 14 points, but importantly would have won the head-to-head. -head. Of course, just to make life even more complicated, there is also a game between Ireland and Samoa, which uh, could affect things depending on whether or not Ireland managed to pick up a bonus point, and it's not impossible to see a scenario where all three teams finish on the same points margin, in which case it's going to be score difference that decides who goes through, and that is also why Scotland's game against Russia is so important, because now Scotland have the best points difference in their pool with a plus 71, compared with Ireland who are on plus 52 and Japan who are on plus 46. Of course, none of that matters if Scotland lose to Japan. They do have to win before any of these more esoteric scenarios come into play. But when it comes to this game, and this game only, as you can imagine, Gregor Townsend, the head coach, was a pretty happy man afterwards. The effort that went in to get that scoreline and to put pressure on the Russian defence to open up spaces, um, 
was was huge from our players. The first action lasted four minutes fifty, I think, um, when I looked at the clock, uh, which you don't often see. You don't certainly see it at the beginning of the game. So shows you the the ambition that Russia came with. They moved the ball a lot, which stressed our defence, but it also created um, some turnovers for us. Uh, and that we exploited them the longer the game went on. Obviously enough, the stars of the match were the two halfbacks, George Horn and Adam Hastings. Horn with his hat trick, but 26 points and a masterful demonstration, not just of try scoring, but of tactical kicking as well, keeping the ball pinned into the Russian corners every time. It looked as though Scotland might be under any sort of pressure. It was certainly enough to make him a justified man of the match. One of the few occasions recently when I've had no quarrels at all with where the award went. For Townsend, it was just good to see his two second choice, don't forget, because Greg Laidlaw and Finn Russell will undoubtedly start against Japan. His second choice halfbacks performing so well for him. Yeah, they, they played with real confidence um, and speed, so they were they were very busy. I think they had a, especially Adam, had a real balance to his game. So he put some excellent attacking kicks in the first half. George had really good clearing kicks, uh, and they both worked very hard. George will probably be the fittest player in our, our squad, and he gets the breaks down breakdown quickly. He gets on shoulders of players whenever they make a break but Adam's very fit too so he, he got on ball on a number of occasions so it's a good game for them, they look, they look confident and, and fit and obviously scored a couple of tries But it wasn't just the scoring that pleased Townsend so much, at the other end of the scale they also stopped Russia from scoring and Russia came with a game plan to attack Scotland through the midfield, they put their big runners there and they got no joy out of it at all and that was testament not just to the Scottish midfield but to the determination of the back row to get across and cover in those areas. It is, the statisticians tell me, the first time since 1964 that an international team has kept a clean sheet in two consecutive matches and it is certainly the first time in any World Cup game which is testament to a lot of the character in this Scotland side. Credit to the players for that, um, to keep going uh, hard in defence but also credit to, to Matt Taylor as coach and, and also I want to highlight Danny Wilson. Uh, the last two games our forwards have de delivered in a number of areas, especially around the set piece. We saw that Russia brought a, an excellent scrum, um, very good maul and very physical um, group of forwards. And I thought our scrum was excellent tonight. Uh, straight away we put them under pressure, our maul got better and better. And we we forced mistakes through their their line out. Uh, so it was it was very good to see. I think um, you you look at getting the bonus point first of all. Uh, we knew that if we hadn't got the bonus point tonight, Sunday would have been even more difficult. So getting that was excellent. Getting a bigger score um, just to keep things interesting for Saturday night as well, the Ireland Samoa game. But also for the confidence of the players, knowing that it's two games now that we haven't conceded a try or or even a point is is very encouraging. 
one of many things that was encouraging Gregor Townsend about the game and it was a game which certainly held out hope for the future since this was basically quite a young Scotland side that he had out and most of the players who sparkled were certainly the younger element of it but there was also space for a few old dogs to produce their old tricks as well not least John Barkley who was captaining the side for the first time for 18 months and not only contributed as a player but also claimed one of the tries a slightly bizarre one he got the uh, ball off an offload in midfield and seemed to be totally covered with three players closing in on him and he looked as though he was looking for support but somehow or other all the players dropped off him and he had a nice easy canter into the line he looked as surprised as anybody to have actually got there but later he was making a bit more of it with his usual sense of humour. Yeah, well, so what I did was I, I looked back on the screen and I just did a little step off my left, threw him with my eyes to the right, little dummy, and then I was in. So I don't know, I don't think the GPS would be that high <laughs> speed-wise for the canter in, but um, yeah, it was fun. I really enjoyed tonight. On a more serious note, though, it was certainly the performance that John Barkley was looking for. There was a little bit of nerves in our team run yesterday just because We'd seen like Russia had made it really uncomfortable for a lot of teams that they played against. You know, look at the Ireland game, look at whoever they played against. It was it was niggly. It wasn't free flowing stuff. So it was a little bit nervous because we knew the responsibility that we had. So um, to go in 21-0, I think it was half time, was brilliant. And then it was, it was one of those games. It was really fun to just be part of. It's one of those games where we could throw the ball around. Once we knew, we sort of had the result in the bag. But boys were. I think boys were just excited to be out somewhere, so I haven't played that much. Um, I thought some of the boys were brilliant tonight. And to be honest, in a crowd of just over 44,000, give or take a sellout for that stadium, I don't think there were many who would disagree with John Barclay's assessment there. Incidentally, talking about the crowd size, full marks to somebody or other in the SRU, 16,000 school children got bussed in, and I think every single one of them seemed to be waving a saltire in supporting Scotland, which certainly will have done nothing to harm the team's chances. Of course, if there is a hammering like that, there has to be a side on the receiving end as well. And for Russia, I think it was fair to say it was a slightly disappointing finish to a campaign that has been full of encouragement. And despite the final result, Lynn Jones, the Russian coach, was A, full of praise for Scotland and B, full of praise for his own players. For, for Russia, it's been a, a huge success for us to have late inclusion into the tournament and uh, the way we've prepared and uh, organised ourselves ready for supersonic rugby at uh, Tier 1 uh, is, uh, is all credit to our players. Um, level Tier 1 rugby is, is not a, another level, it's, it's another sport for, for Tier 2 teams. Uh, fast, furious, error free and the referee never blows his whistle. So it's always going to be a challenge um, for us and uh, I thought today Scotland played really well. They got the tactics right, put the ball behind us and then pressured our uh, exit strategies and, uh, and got their rewards. And then, you know, we've, uh, we've played three massive games uh, for us and uh, today uh, <clears throat> was always going to be difficult, we knew that. And uh, if I played to Scotland, uh, they put the ball around and uh, played with a speed and a tempo and a support and growing confidence into the game. Uh, C'est la vie. 
Lynn Jones on Russia's reaction to the game. But I did want to know from Lynn, who I've known for a long time, exactly what he thinks his team can achieve on the basis of what they have done in this World Cup. Is it a foundation for going on to greater and better things, or is it a flash in the pan? And I've got to confess, I have known Lynn for a long time, as he made clear. Good question. Um, I first did an interview with Lewis in 1984, believe it or not, and uh, here he is today. Uh, and here am I. Uh, <clears throat> I think the, uh, the physical potential in, in Russia is unlimited. The, um, it, it's, it's if, they, if we decided to take it seriously as the signs within the union are, uh, are so, then who knows what, what can be achieved. Uh, it's a sleeping bear, it's a sleeping giant, and uh, we just need to shake it awake and uh, uh, just watch the potential uh, that comes uh, from, uh, from this tournament. Uh, look, the, the small things that uh, we just haven't got time to work on, we're just working on the big macro skills to get ourselves presentable for this tournament has, uh, has been good for us. Uh, the next step for us now is the small bits and uh, dealing with pressure, how to pressure, and uh, just moving the ball, that, that one little pass extra, uh, which is the, the sign of ability. So we've, we've come a long way, Lewis, to be honest with you, and uh, if we'd have played this tournament uh, 12 months ago, we would have been blown out of the water. Uh, but uh, playing four big games in a short period of time is, uh, I think, it's just commendable to the Russian players who've stood up and uh, represented the nation as best they can and with pride. So a bit of a downbeat finish for Russia to a campaign which has given them a huge amount to build on for the future. If they can get more players playing at the kind of level that they need to be at if they are going to compete in games like this rather than just hang around and be awkward. But whatever their potential for the future, their World Cup is now over. They've played four games, they've lost them all. And that has got to be taken into account when you judge this Scotland performance. But even if you're going to take a slightly more measured attitude to it, there were a lot of things to be positive about. There were a lot of young players who came in. We've already mentioned Horn and Hastings and various others who have great careers ahead of them on the basis of what they produced in this World Cup. But there were also a couple of the old guard who had rather blotted their copybook against Ireland, who did enough to get back into the reckoning in this one. And one of those is Tommy Seymour, who I've already mentioned as one of the try scorers. And Tommy has had a bit of a dry spell recently. The last two years, he did get a hat-trick against Fiji but that is the only time that he has scored in a game until this one so for him after a reasonably barren spell it was great just to get back on the score sheet again um, look I'm obviously delighted to help us uh, you know achieve a scoreline tonight um, obviously the job is wrapped up by the time I'd, I'd snuck across but um, for the most part I'm just really happy as, as what we did as a squad tonight as a 23 I thought we were we were very good tonight we were very professional we built throughout the 80th minute 
and, and we continue to push even after the fourth try had been scored. So, um, you know, obviously from a selfish point of view, it's always nice to get across the whitewash. But um, as I've always said in, in previous interviews, for me, it's about helping the helping the team achieve results when I'm on the park. And um, you know, we did that tonight. You must be very happy with the way things went. Just in general in that back division, there was an energy about the way that that back division was playing and incisiveness that hasn't always been there in the last little while. Yeah, look, we I think we showed a lot of energy tonight. As you know, as has been said, you know, prior to to the fixture, that some guys coming in that have had their first first chance this World Cup. I thought um, I thought both the Horn brothers were phenomenal. Um, I thought Blair Kinghorn was phenomenal. Well, there wasn't a man in the back line. Dunkey Taylor, Darcy Graham for his 45 minutes. Um, you know, George moving in the wing. Henry came on. I thought had a huge impact. Um, and then obviously uh, Hasto, you know, was uh, mercurial as ever. So, look, I'm uh, I'm really pleased. I thought we um, showed a lot of really good qualities tonight, and um, we helped get a, a job done against a really difficult Russian side. And um, hopefully that will that will keep feeding in the energy into the squad moving into Sunday. And try Blair kicking it through for you. Was that something that you called? He called? Or? Yeah. Look, I'd, I'd sort of I don't want to I don't want to try and take too much credit, but um, yeah, no, like I'd, I'd seen the call in behind or seen the space in behind, so I had a little little scream into him but um, the difficulty comes with uh, with being able to execute that kick and fair play to him he's a he's a wonderful footballer and um, he was able to get that uh, in and out of his hands very quickly in an exact right spot for me so um, yeah I owe a lot of credit to him for that so what does that performance do for the confidence of everybody in the squad looking ahead to the Japan game which is obviously certainly the biggest game since the last World Cup yeah absolutely look it is it it is a massive fixture but as you said like a, a result like that can do nothing but to you know, lift the energy levels and, and keep them, you know, keep the confidence level high. I think the fact we've gone back to back with, uh, you know, con not conceding a try as well is massive. I don't think that should be under undervalued. Obviously, the, the onus this week will have, you know, for most, you know, most people would have been looking at making sure we achieve the fourth try. But um, for us being able to go back to back uh, without conceding any points um, is huge in terms of our confidence levels, and and that'll be massive going into Japan, knowing that uh, we've been able to shut out two very good teams. So. Um, fingers crossed, you know, everything comes Sunday will be uh, of the highest level. Tommy Seymour, more than happy to share the glory with his teammates as they put a cricket score up on Russia and in the process putting himself back into contention for a place against Japan, assuming that game on Sunday does go ahead somewhere, if not necessarily in Yokohama. Realistically, I think it is fair to say that even after that performance, Tommy Seymour is probably not a first choice. Darcy Graham produced a fantastic break in the first half to lay on the first of George Horne's tries and was generally a nuisance and certainly far more active than Seymour was. But he will have also known that Sean Maitland has not been training recently with a groin problem. And although we're assured that he is going to be fit on Sunday if the game goes ahead, then we have also been told these things before and they haven't always turned out to be accurate. So there could be a vacancy there and Seymour is more than happy to fill it if required. Now in that clip you will have heard him referring to Peter Horn who also had an utterly fantastic game. I think it's one of the best games I've seen Peter play in Scotland colours. He was putting himself at first receiver and punching holes in the Russian defence. He was kicking for position almost as much as Adam Hastings was and he shored up the defence as the Russians tried to pile their big back row forwards through the middle. So 
from his point of view, not only could he take the reflected glory from his brother's hat-trick, but he could take a fair amount of glory from his own contribution. I was proud of the way we played. I think right from the start, you know, we showed our intent, we carried really hard, we're physical, and we kind of broke, the, broke them in the first half, you know, the, the way that we played. We, we kicked really well, and yeah, although it was disappointing not to get that bonus point just before half-time, I think in a way it meant that we were still, you know, we came out and we were still so determined to, to you know, finish the job. So, uh, no, it was really really good professional performance and it was you particularly in the first half you seem to be coming up at first receiver a lot you seem to be punching a lot of holes and taking a lot of responsibility for kicking as well so you must have been very pleased with that aspect of it yeah no I was like I said I th- yeah I thought um, I was happy enough with my game tonight you know I've been desperate to play and uh, yeah I was I had loads of energy and things so it was good you know I tried to make sure I was like you say stepping up and helping out the forwards especially in that finish zone trying to take a bit of load off them and no it did it worked really well I thought Adam, you know, Adam and George, the halfbacks were outstanding. The two of them played really, really well, and it kind of made my life a lot easier. Were you consciously taking a bit of pressure off Adam a wee bit, with the, particularly with, as I said, first receiver and kicking? Oh, I think I kind of that's my sort of natural game. You know, I, pro- I always kind of try and, and do that, take a bit of the pressure off the, the tens, and um, you know, a lot of the time I can, you know, rest easy and feel like I've had a, a good game if, I, if my standoffs had a good game. So uh, he certainly had a cracker tonight. So I'll take that as a as a positive. Well, you must look at the the wee brother and think be quite proud of what he did. First Scottish scrum half ever to score a hat trick. Is that right? Yeah. yeah, no, I was. I was really proud of him. You know, he's he's uh, ah, he's someone else, isn't he? he? Just he's always there in the right position, and he's so quick and fit. You know, he can just you know when he gets the ball, he's going to score in those situations. So uh, no, I was I was delighted for him. He's been working really really hard, and he's had to be patient. But uh, no, another he laid another good marker down tonight. What's that do though with the mood in the squad going into this Japan game? You got the thought day turnaround before playing probably the biggest game that you played since the quarterfinal four years ago yeah oh, to be honest it's kind of if we've got this whole thing it feels like it's yeah in a way it's like us against the world you know we're we're buzzing for it you know it's a massive challenge everyone's kind of counting us out and it just makes it all the more exciting for us you know we started tonight with a bang we got got you know job done there got our five points and now we've recovered and we're determined to go out and and show everyone what we're made of this weekend so uh, no it is it's a real determined attitude and everyone's I think everyone's excited you know all the chat's been quite negative about this feeling sorry for ourselves and things and obviously it's not ideal but it does it just makes you even more determined it did look like to be a real buzz about the team there from the word go there was an energy about them it hasn't always been there yeah I think like we've that team especially the the back line we've been training together for three weeks now you know three four weeks since the kind of Ireland game and you know we've we've trained really well together we've been really just excited you know as soon as the team got announced everyone in the change room after we were all buzzing it was our first kind of opportunity and we were so excited uh, to play and you know we wanted to make sure that we didn't let anyone down and that we we put in a a good performance so uh, as soon as we got that bonus point it wasn't a case of like job done we were all like right come on next try next try and you know it just was it was great it just rubbed off on everyone and yeah I was proud of the boys tonight. Peter Horn wrapping up the first part of the programme. Time for an ad break and I'll be back afterwards with a look at Japanese rugby and how it is reacting to the World Cup and all things including the typhoon and what might happen there. The Line Out with Lewis Stewart on Rock Sport Radio. Brought to you by Motorpoint Glasgow. Just get the ball over the post at Motorpoint Glasgow's Conversion Challenge to win two tickets to the Six Nations. Find them just two minutes 
minutes from Junction 3 off the M74. Have you picked up the Feel the Heat brochure from your local plum base? Get one today and take advantage of great offers, including Polypipe's Polymax 100-piece fittings bucket at £99.99. That's a 15% saving on purchasing individual pieces, and it's exclusive to plum base. The Polypipe Polymax 100-piece fittings bucket is just part of the Polypipe range available in the plum base Feel the Heat brochure. Shop online now at plumbase.co.uk or grab one from your local branch. Motor Point, we've put the super into car supermarket. We're here to save the day with a choice of over 7,000 low mileage, nearly new cars. Find your next car in a flash with our lightning fast service and same day drive away. Plus, with Motor Point's price pledge, if you find the same car for less, we'll match the price and give you a £50 Amazon voucher. Visit Motor Point Glasgow today, just two minutes from Junction 3 of the M74. T's and C's apply. See website for details. The list of things you need to do gets longer at this time of year, whether that's for the house or in your business. So take one thing off your list right now. Your septic tank could need emptied. Let Grant Henderson Tankers empty your septic tank in the home or work, farm, factory or workshop at very competitive rates. We are septic tank specialists, experienced, safe and dedicated to environmental safety with our own licensed disposal site. Find out more at wemovesh.it or call 01698-284-987. Grant Henderson Tankers, let the experts manage your waste. Have you ever lost money on an investment? If a high street bank persuaded you to buy a stocks and shares ISA, unit trust or investment bond and you lost money, Goodwin Barrett can help you get back thousands of pounds in compensation. We've already helped thousands of people just like you claim back millions of pounds. Even if you don't have the investment anymore or the paperwork, Goodwin Barrett make it easy to find out. Text GOOD to 6677. Text GOOD to 6677 now. Love music, live sport. The Lineout with Lewis Stewart on Rock Sport Radio. Hello and welcome back to part two of the Lineout, your guide to everything that is going on in Scottish rugby. Part one I devoted entirely to a reaction to the game earlier today where Scotland beat Russia by 61 points to nil. Part two is going to be devoted more to looking to the future and is going to be dominated by a conversation that I had with my friend Rich Freeman, who is a journalist out here in Japan, has been for 25 years or so, and knows just about everything that there is to know about Japanese rugby. So looking for a guide to how the World Cup is going in Japan, how the Japanese are reacting to having a big rugby tournament on their doorstep. The latest on the Typhoon Hagibis, or Haggis, depending which way you want to pronounce it, and uh, various other things, all up for discussion in a very wide-ranging conversation. But I thought the sensible place to start, given that most of you listeners won't know much about Rich, is for him to explain how somebody from England ends up becoming the preeminent rugby journalist in Japan, certainly as far as the English language media goes. 
The Line Out with Lewis Stewart on Rock Sport Radio. Brought to you by Motorpoint Glasgow. Convert your rugby skills into two free tickets to the Six Nations in Rome. Visit Motorpoint Glasgow today and take part in their conversion challenge. Just two minutes from Junction 3 of the M74. Long story, originally came for a year, left for a bit, missed it a bit. Came back about 25 years ago, 24 years ago, and yeah, been here ever since. And obviously, most of that time you've been covering uh, Japanese rugby. How much change have you seen in that time? Oh, a huge change. I mean, if someone said to me that even uh-huh. Japan would be hosting a World Cup when I first started covering it, I would have laughed. Now that they're sort of possibly on the verge of a place in the quarterfinals, it's uh, yeah, a massive change. Uh, we'll come back to that one <laughs> a sore point later. <laughs> but, uh, you know, has the country, do you think, really embraced this World Cup? Because I kind of get the impression that the Japanese people have embraced the team and they've embraced the performances, but they haven't really embraced rugby as such. I think you've got to realise that there's a completely different rugby culture here. I mean, it's not based on villages or towns or club sides. It's predominantly based on the high schools, universities and corporate sides. And so the whole attitude to rugby is very different. The big question from this World Cup will be what legacy there is and whether there will be sustainable change. And what does that involve? What do they need to do to make that change sustainable? They need to change a lot of things. I mean, one of the big problems with sport in general in Japan is the fact that it's based around what's called the Bukatsu system, which is the club system at school, whereby kids will only basically play one sport year-round. So from the age of 12, that's it, whether it's baseball, ping-pong, rugby. Obviously, rugby has its problems because it's a contact sport and they play a lot of the games at the sort of non-private schools on gravel fields so that a lot of the kids will stop playing at a very early age and at 15 onwards there are no age grade teams in Japan so if you don't go to a high school that has a rugby team you're lost basically. That must be a big problem because you, you do need the numbers coming through the system and you can see the Japanese team there are a lot of players who weren't born in Japan had obviously learned the basis of their rugby outside Japan and that presumably part and parcel of the same problem. It is I mean to be fair with some of the foreigners there was one called Holani that played number eight four years ago and when he first turned up in Japan he was on an academic scholarship and they said what do you play and he said the trombone <laughs> so he'd learned all his rugby in Japan um, so it is a problem um, as I say I mean in a way it's a good thing that's what Eddie Jones worked on the fact that these players train harder than probably any other team in the world Jamie Joseph has also had them in some pretty hard camps in the last few months so that works to their advantage but yeah I mean Japanese kids also need to go out and play overseas as well the referees need to go out and play overseas because there is a big problem at the top league games if you talk to some of the foreign players and coaches here and so it just needs Hopefully this World Cup will encourage people to realise there is a world outside Japan and it's a place where they can go and play and, and earn a living and then come back and bring what they've learned overseas to Japan. I think one of the things that is different between Japan and Scotland, although a lot of you have brought a lot of players in from outside, most of them seem to have arrived for reasons other than rugby. They weren't here purely to become you know, Japanese rugby players. Yeah, I mean, of the squad of 31, only six didn't go to either high school or university in Japan. And two of those are long-term residents who are passport holders and citizens in Lamani, who's already represented Japan in the Olympics and Luke Thompson who's been here 16 years so there is a different there are, uh, you know, the whole idea of this project player or whatever mm. I know is a big thing over in, in Europe <laughs> but they do come here for different reasons I mean Uwe Hellu made a point recently he said he came here because he wanted to be independent and then he knew he could make a bit of money which he can then send home to his family in Tonga which is obviously one of the big things about Japan there does seem to be a fair amount of money involved in the game here 
Um, there is and there isn't. The money's there, but it's the corporates have it. Yeah. So the corporates can pay big money. What you've got to remember as well is a lot of the Japanese players, some of them are not actually professional rugby players. They will still have a company contract, and so they will technically be expected to work. And that happens particularly at the top league sides, where you know the top players, the foreign players, will be on professional contracts. The top Japanese players, two or three maybe, will be on a professional rugby contract. The rest are salarymen, so they'll turn up to train, go to work, and then turn up and train in the evening. So, how much understanding is from from the companies then that these guys train four or five days a week and maybe sort of make a token effort at uh, being uh, having a job, or are they actually expected to contribute? I think it depends on the level of the player. I mean, you know, <laughs> someone like Nagai who's starting Scrum Half for Japan, he has recently converted from being a company employee into a professional rugby player because they realised that he's going to be away with the Sunwolves, away with the national team. But obviously, lower down the chain, the guys have to go out and, and earn a living. So you look at that, the what's going on in rugby in Japan, but then you also look at things like the Samoa game the other night and people saying television audiences were up at about 46% of the population. I mean, it's about 60-odd million people watching a game of rugby. That's got to be fantastic for the future of the game. That's got to sort of spark imaginations all around the place. It does, but if they don't then have a place to play, which is <laughs> going back to the legacy problem, there's there's an issue. And, and obviously, we've got the Olympics coming here in eight, nine months' time. Short attention span of kids, if they don't get to play rugby within the next few months, all of a sudden they're going to be sitting and watching gymnastics or swimming or tennis or track and field and probably decide that that's what they want to do because it's more accessible to them. But you look at the Brave, the Brave Blossoms themselves, that's a team that has come a long, long way very, very quickly. I mean, Eddie Jones obviously started it, but Jamie Jones seems to have taken them to a different level. Yeah, I mean, this year he, he took a lot of stick because he took out most of the top players from the Sunwolves and he rested them up because he realised that for a lot of them they've been playing non-stop rugby for five or six years because of national team commitments, top league commitments, the Sunwolves commitments, and so he did take them out. And obviously the more exposure they get to Tier 1 teams, the better it becomes. I mean, Eddie Jones showed that when they beat Wales, obviously, in 2013, a depleted Wales side, but then since then they've gone on and played every single Tier 1 side, which obviously in the past was never heard of for Japan. And beaten a lot of them. I mean, obviously, Scotland, when they were last here, were very lucky to get away with the win in the second test. But they actually said they have beat Wales, and then, of course, they had that uh, miracle in Brighton, uh, yep. the subject of a film and everything. <laughs> <laughs> uh, they beat, I mean, they should have beaten Italy 2-0 last year. They, uh, they dropped the second test. They, they drew with France in Paris, which isn't a bad effort. Which made, you know, they're obviously a team going places. I suppose the question over the game on Sunday, though, sort of coming around to that at long last, yeah. is that in the past they have come into the games you know, as the underdogs, that people were looking at the other side as favourites, and there was no real pressure on Japan. If they lost, then that was just what you expected. This game, it seems to me that suddenly the pressure is on them. People are actually expecting them to beat Scotland, at least in Japan. Oh, I agree. I mean, if you look at the first game against Russia, very nervous performance because there was so much pressure on them winning the opening game. Against Ireland, no pressure on them. And they produced probably the best rugby I've ever seen Japan play. Then Samoa, the pressure's back on because they're expected to beat Samoa. And again, for 60 minutes, it was a pretty nervy performance. And then you look at it, you know, they got the rub of the green at the end, very, very much so. Yeah, it was a strange decision, I have to admit. Um, but that's have the way it goes. Ever, when was the last time you saw a crooked feed called in the scrum? Well, I mean, I, you know, I've, I've sat there and talked with people who have far more knowledge of the game who actually said, yes, I mean, that was obviously the one thing. But then 
then to have the scrum, even the decision to have the scrum on your own line, where obviously <laughs> they backed themselves to score from 90 metres. Perhaps a quick tap and go might have been better, given that scrums, you know, there are so many penalties and variables that can happen at scrum time. And as you say, it was a, a rather odd decision. Lots of odd decisions. <laughs> I thought the Simone decision was odd. The Japanese decisions were sort of spot on, but the referee's decision was probably the oddest of the lot. You know, what sort of health are they in, though? I mean, in general, I mean, obviously, we've seen the results, but bubbling underneath, and you know, sort of, is this a team that is capable of sustaining this in the long term? Well, I think a lot will happen. A lot will depend on who takes over or whether Jamie Joseph stays on. I mean, there's talk about getting him to stay on, whether it's in a mentoring role towards the next World Cup and then having a Japanese coach come from from underneath. Um, we don't know. I mean, we know Tony Brown is going back to New Zealand. Scott Hansen's going back to New Zealand. So it's sort of one of these long-standing problems with Japanese rugby that we're never quite sure. Day-to-day almost. Day-to-day almost. Day-to-day almost. And some of the players presumably will be going as well because one or two of them are a wee yeah. bit long in the two. Yeah. And then, I mean, that was initially when Jamie took over. They struggled a little bit because they lost a lot of players after 2015. Um, the new players are better suited to probably playing international because they have come up to playing the Sunwolves and it's not just the games that they've been playing with the Sunwolves it's everything that goes with it it's the flying it's the mental pressure it's the fact that they're getting on a plane straight after a game and they're sort of outside their comfort zone because Japanese players have been very protected they've you know generally gone to very good high schools gone to the top universities and then gone to the top co corporate side so um, you know to succeed at the highest level you've got to get out of your comfort zone and that's what has happened in the last few years. presumably losing the balls down is going to be a big blow it is and I mean one of the biggest blows for me and that's one of the reasons why this World Cup has been so good corporate rugby is very um, quiet it's probably the best way to say it. It's very, there's a Japanese word which is giddy, which is duty, which is a lot of the fans go there. So you'll have a double header, and what you'll see at the end of one game is two fans from the first game all leaving because they've done their duty to watch their company team, and then the next set of fans sort of walk past them. Um, you know, as a rugby fan, if I'd bought a ticket, I'd be there for two games. But um, what the Sunwolves did was it, it allowed fans to just be themselves because if you're at a corporate game with your bosses, you can't go crazy. You're sort of worried about what happens. You you can't have a few beers and whatever else. But at the Sunwolves game, people started howling. The young, it was a much younger crowd. It was a much more mixed male and female crowd as well because they just sat there and enjoyed the atmosphere, enjoyed the game without any pressures, without duty to their company. And I think that's carried on into this World Cup. And so the Sunwolves, it seemed to me as well from what I was reading, that not only that they were getting big crowds, they weren't necessarily getting the results, but they were certainly getting you know, the roof, uh, a decent size oh. of people turning up. Yeah, I mean, I mean, obviously the problem they had was three games a year in Singapore, which, you know, <laughs> someone who covers them is great, but I mean, the crowds are <laughs> awful, and they played in this massive stadium, which was just like very quiet. Yeah. Uh, Prince Chichibu, though, I mean, it was packed, the noise was un incredible, every team that came up commented on the atmosphere that they had. So it, it's something that will be lost to Japanese rugby. And to rugby in general by the sounds of it. Yeah. I mean that's the sort of thing that you really need to be doing to generate enthusiasm because you look at the stadiums in Australia and New Zealand and things like that, you know, that are with uh, large empty spaces and Japan is the, is the contrast. Well, I think one of the biggest issues and it's something that was talked about actually by John Cohen a long time ago and this is, they're talking about bringing in a new professional league here in 2021, possibly the year after, based in the 12 World Cup venues. And what that does, it 
almost creates a bit of sort of tribalism because all of a sudden now you're supporting your home team. You're not supporting a franchise. So you're not supporting you're a company. against whatever. Yeah. It, so. Which is what football did just before the Football World Cup here in 2002, and they get 20, 25,000 every game because the towns embrace. The teams, the teams will set up academies which will allow kids to then progress through and have a goal because at the moment you start playing rugby in Japan there is no pyramid, there is no end goal. For a lot of kids their, their goal is just to play at Hanazono, the high school national championships and then that's it. Possibly then their goal will be to play at the university final and only a select few would then have a goal of playing top league and for their country. So, by having regional teams set up with academies, you're creating a pathway. Have they made a mistake, though, in not doing this before the World Cup rather than after? Because uh, you know, you've now got a two-year gap before it could possibly start. And as you say, you've got the Olympics and other things happening in between. The benefits of this aren't going to last that long, are they? Oh, no. And that's probably why I'm not the most popular man within the JFU, <laughs> because I've been saying this for about 10 years since they were awarded the rights to host the World Cup. I said, it's great, it's a catalyst for change, but you've got to change. Whereas the change and at the moment it just seems that they were so focused on these six weeks so focused on trying to produce the best ever tournament they sort of forgot that after the tournament rugby carries on but when you say produce the best ever tournament they're making a pretty good on good go with it aren't they i mean it has been as good a world cup as i've been at oh no i think it, it's been great the people i mean as i say it, it's it's worked both ways because obviously the foreign fans have brought in their exuberance and their sort of big match day experience as it were <laughs> which doesn't involve just going to the game and leaving. The Japanese have bought into that, and obviously the foreigners have learnt some things from the Japanese regarding culture. So I think it's, it's been great. And it has been, it's been a wonderful experience for the Scottish fans, from my point of view at least, and obviously other international fans as well, coming in here and experiencing a Japanese culture and experiencing a very, very, very different way of life. It's uh, an enthusiastic, but they've embraced it enthusiastically, haven't they? Yeah, I mean, again, in all almost goes back to what I was saying about this whole Bukatsu system in it there is a sort of almost a tunnel vision in certain things in Japan because they've always had to focus on one thing be it the one club that they focused on at school or their one job within the company and so when they see something ahead of them it's full on for that and so with this World Cup everyone has fully embraced it. The country has fully embraced it and you look at all sorts of things wandering around the place and you know, it's not just the flags and everything else but actually people out there who are probably didn't know what rugby was six months ago, you know, are talking about it and, you know, they're asking me if I'm here for it and things like that, you know. Sort of yeah, no, I heard someone it. the other day saying he was, over, and he was a far more fluent speaker of Japanese than I am, but he overheard two sort of rather elderly gentlemen talking about the jump scrum, which apparently is how they were describing a line-out. So, um, yeah, I mean, people are talking about it, which is great. It's on the TV every day and, um, you know, this is what the JFU now have to build on. And you hope that they will. And looking at the game itself on Sunday, I um, know you're going to tell me that Japan are going to win. <laughs> so I'm not going to ask you a question. Oh, I don't know about that. Do you think, <laughs> but do you think that, I mean, what are the chances of Scotland winning and what are the chances of Scotland winning with the stopping Japan getting the tri-bonus point that would actually knock Japan out of the World Cup. But if they did, what ramifications would that have on the rest of the tournament? I think people will still enjoy the tournament. I think they've enjoyed it so much now. Obviously, there would be huge disappointment if Japan didn't make it to the quarterfinals. As you say, there is so much expectation on them now. It would require a pretty colossal performance, I would say, from Scotland in just trying to 
break down the crowd. I mean, here we are in Shizuoka a week or so ago against Ireland. I have never heard a Japanese crowd like that, ever. Because the Irish obviously have a culture of singing. Yeah. Japan doesn't have a culture of singing at a sporting event, unless it's very orchestrated at a baseball game, for example, where each player has his own particular little song and there's organized cheerleaders and bands playing. At rugby, there is no culture. And so that game, when Ireland took an early lead and there was so much noise from the Irish fans, the Japanese didn't really know how to react. So they just decided, well, we're just going to make it even noisier. <laughs> and it was an incredible atmosphere for 80 minutes, just the noise. And you've got to have another 20,000 if it is played at Yokohama, which is obviously in doubt at the moment. Yeah, well, that's the, yes, we'll see what the weather is. At the moment, it doesn't look good. And, um, you know, it's one of those things people are saying, oh, well, I've played in a bit of wind and rain, but I can tell you, having been through a few typhoons, it's it's more the public safety. It's the trains closing down. It's possible structures that uh, damage to the structures and buildings, so it's not to be taken lightly. But if it does have to be moved, does that actually play to Scotland's fans? Rather, because presumably it removes the fan, a lot of the fans' involvement in it. There won't be needed well, many I, people. I don't think there'll be anybody there because I mean I can't imagine if they move it to any stadium. How are they going to fit seven? Yokohama is the biggest stadium in Japan. Seventy thousand people. If they play at any other stadium, how are they going to sit there and say, "Well, you can come in and watch, and you can't come in and watch"? Besides the whole logistical things of how would people even move there? I mean, moving two teams and a few officials plus four tons of equipment each and, and uh, all the rest yeah, of it. It's not I mean, a minor exercise. No, but it's it's more doable than moving seventy thousand people. It is. It is. So um, <laughs> you know, I think you know, World Rugby have got some pretty big decisions to make within the next. I would have to say. Day or two because you can't leave it too late. I know you've been keeping an eye on the situation. It looks as though the typhoon should blow through ahead of the game, but then there's obviously the possibility, as you say, of they don't know whether there's going to be damage, they don't know whether the railways are going to be up and running and things like that's, that. I mean, that's the, the whole thing. I mean, the lo- we had a typhoon about a, six weeks ago, and there were still people in Chiba struggling big time, you know, the loss of power and whatever else. So, I mean, all it needs is a couple of train tracks for the trees to fall down on the train tracks, a bit of lost power at the stadium. You know, so many variables. So many variables, which would play into Scotland because it would take the crowd out of the equation, which would be if, one thing. If they if they do move it, because, they do move it. you know, technically the law is the pool game does not get played. It, if it's not played, it's a draw. So which well, not Scotland? <laughs> yeah. So World Rugby will have a bit of explaining to do to whichever side of the three sides, obviously in contention. Yeah. Whichever side doesn't get through because of if the games are affected. There's going to be an awful lot of explaining having to be done about why the rules maybe weren't applied as they were supposed to be, or why they were changed. Or or whatever, and why things worked out the way they did, and why they hadn't got the rules didn't take into account contingency plans that allowed people to move games and things like that, which they don't appear to have done. But in general, just finishing off, how much have you enjoyed this World Cup? Has it been the experience you thought it might be? Uh, it's been interesting. I mean, it's a home World Cup, so it's not like you're living out of a suitcase for six or seven weeks. I can go home every now and again and sort of <laughs> do the normal things, like a, the odd school run and, uh, you know, wash my clothes and everything. So, but I mean, it's been great going around Japan and, and seeing stadiums that you know I've been to on so many occasions where they're 
haven't been a lot of people. I mean, I was at Kobe last night, you know, South Africa against Canada, but it was packed, absolutely packed, great noise, great atmosphere, and from that point of view, yeah, it's been a good World Cup. An indoor stadium there, and the noise reverberates around, you know, yeah. they're making, it sort of bounces off the rafters. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, mind you, I must admit, I didn't enjoy that one too much. It was just it sitting was, there, it was sweating like nobody's business. It wasn't as humid last night, I can assure you. It was actually quite pleasant. Oh, dear. <laughs> so, how long before Japan get the World Cup back? <laughs> Who knows? Who knows? Probably won't be in my lifetime, that's all I know. <laughs> Rugby journalist Rich Freeman with his take on all things to do with the World Cup and Japanese rugby and also his new role as a weather forecaster on the typhoon Hagibis coming in. I'm afraid that's it for this week. I'll be back next week with a report hopefully on what happens if that Japan-Scotland game goes ahead. But regardless of what happens with the typhoon, I will be back next week, I promise, with more about Scottish rugby. In the meantime, the clock has beaten us. Good night. The Lineout with Lewis Stewart on Rock Sport Radio. Brought to you by Motorpoint Glasgow. Convert your rugby skills into two free tickets to the Six Nations in Rome. Visit Motorpoint Glasgow today and take part in their conversion challenge. Just two minutes from Junction 3 at the M74. Love music, live sport. The Line Out with Lewis Stewart on Rock Sport Radio.